Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is someone who spends his time dealing with some of the most difficult conditions to treat. These conditions are expensive and the treatment is often associated with some of the greatest inequities in healthcare. He does his work creatively, cheerfully, and with a sense of optimism that is infectious. My guest on the podcast today is oncologist Don Dizon. You're very welcome to the show, Don. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today. Now, you're an oncologist, and I'm wondering how you started in your career. Why medicine and why oncology in particular? You know, I always say that I'm a product of uh, television because I still remember being, I think it was even before I turned into a teenager, there was a show on TV, and I'm dating myself, but it was called St. Elsewhere here in the United States. And it, it was a show that was about medical residency. And uh, I just remember this one scene where a character named Elliot, I think it was, he was a fat Jewish kid uh, doing his residency. And he had just been in a hallway and was just, he was um, being yelled at by his attending. And just the emotion of the, the moment that was captured on, on film, I just saw myself as Elliot. You know, as just being in that situation. And, and even if you were being yelled at, it was something just so raw and emotive that I thought, wow, I wonder what that's about. So that kind of stayed with me. And I ended up wanting to do medicine ever since. So even when I went to college, uh, I went in as a biology major, although I was really derailed because I decided I really loved English literature and I really loved religious studies. But I did. I went into medical school and I pursued it. And even in medical school, I thought I was going to be a pediatric cardiologist. And I had a great mentor. But when I went into my clinical years, the people that stayed with me were the people who were grappling with a new diagnosis of cancer. And the first person I took care of had lymphoma. And he didn't, he didn't make it through his hospitalization. And this was, you know, over 20 years ago. And then I went into oncology because I, I really thought I could make a difference because we had nothing back then. There was really no good treatments. And the treatments we had were very toxic. And the first time you met somebody, you, you had to be honest and said, we're going to try our best. But often they didn't survive. And it's been an, a remarkable road as an oncologist, especially coming into today with all these really sexy novel therapies that are really changing people's lives. But that's why I went into it in the very beginning. By the way, most of my medical students uh, that I teach want to become pediatric cardiologists. So not much has changed <laughs> over the years. Yeah, I don't think I could have seen myself as doing that now after all this time. No. But you went into a field that's very technical and very much at the cutting edge of what medicine has to offer. Mm -hmm. So I want to start there in our conversation and say... This is a very technical area, and yet you're dealing with people who are desperate, frankly. Mm -hmm. How do you make that transition between your scientific self, the clinical trials expert, the, the person who, who's looking down the microscope at what this drug is doing to that disease? How do you go, go from that to the person who has to give the bad news or the person who has to try and engender hope in what is a desperate situation? Well, I think part of 
the way I approach it is not to say, I don't go in with uh, the attitude that this is no big deal because everybody knows it's a huge deal. Oftentimes, I know what the diagnosis is and I know the stage and I know if it's advanced or not. And that sets the tone. But for every single person that I talk to, I begin the same way. I, I say the same thing. I say, today, I don't think you're dying. And, you know, I just say it completely because all everybody associates a cancer diagnosis with death. And I say, today, you're not dying. And I think I can help. If I think I can cure, I say, I think I'm going to aim to cure you. If I think I can control the disease, then that's the language I use. If I say, I don't know how long you have, but I think treatment can help you feel better, then I'll say that. But I really try to use very, very plain language about what my intentions for treatment are and what I think I can and cannot do. So go for people I treat who have relapsed. One of the hardest conversations I can, I have is when I say, I can no longer cure this, you know, and at some point, this is likely to kill you. But that is not today. So I'm not one to sort of, and I think it's because I grew up in the South Pacific. I am not one to paint a rosy picture, but I always want people to leave my room with hope. Yes, I can see that. And I can understand that you would take that approach. What about patients who simply don't want to hear that bad news? You, you often get people who say, I want a second opinion. And you can almost predict who's going to be in that boat when you see them first, because they really, really don't want this disease to get the better of them. How do you approach that? Well, I think my approach has shifted. You know, I, I remember in the first five years of my career, I took a request for a second opinion almost personally, like, oh, you don't trust me or you don't think my care is going to be good enough. I, I credit social media for, for making me rethink the whole thing. I approach those requests as I would every single person by recognizing that I'm not the one who needs the help, right? I'm here to offer help. But the person who really needs the help is some the person sitting right across from me. And every person deserves all of their questions answered and every option explored. And if I cannot give them the answers that they are looking for, then they have every right to get a second opinion. So oftentimes when it's mentioned, I'm, I'm the first person to say, I think it's a great idea. And then, but if you need some recommendations, I'm happy to give them to you. If you want me to help get you the appointment, I'm happy to do that. But there's this, there's this language in, in medicine and certainly in oncology to sort of, this is my patient. Oh, my patient is being treated for this. Oh, what are you doing talking to my patient? And I'm, you know, it just, no one owns these people. They're not your patient, just like that's not your cancer that they're, they're living with. This is a patient under my care, but she wants a second opinion. It is not my patient to decide. It is not my choice to decide. Well, I think that's important. It's important to recognize that we are here to help, whatever that means or whatever the circumstance. But if they want to see what else is out there, we should never stand in the way of that. I want to talk now about the disease that we most fear. That, of course, is ovarian cancer. And the reason that we fear it most is because patients present with advanced disease quite often. 
And often the diagnosis is not made by a gynecologist, it's made by a gastroenterologist because they present with bizarre symptoms, which ultimately leads you to look in the part of the body where the thing has started. And of course, that is, to many, for many of us, doctors and patients, a really frightening prospect. Is there hope? Where are we at the moment? What, what is the current uh, state of play? Well, what I would say is that the holy grail is early detection, and we, we're not there yet. I think the ovary is lying so deep in the pelvis, literally, it has to, either the bomb has to go off before the symptoms are really specific. We know that there are some symptoms that are associated with a diagnosis of ovarian cancer, but they're so nonspecific. So if a woman complains of pelvic pain, Common things are common, and ovarian cancer is not common enough to consider in the first top three in the differential. But for women who do have a diagnosis of ovarian cancer, we are making strides, especially recognizing that every woman with ovarian cancer really needs to undergo genetic testing because now we have these treatments that are available for mutation-associated ovarian cancers. And the, the data on these treatments, which are called PARP, inhibitors are really quite striking that we can, there is a potential for a woman with a newly diagnosed BRCA mutation associated with ovarian cancer. We can put her into a sustained remission using PARP inhibitors, but we also know that it seems like this might benefit everyone even if they do not have a BRCA mutation. So we're learning that all ovarian cancers are not equal. We're learning that we can find these subsets where the treatment paradigm can actually be very specific to that person. But we're also expanding our armamentarium. So it is more often than not, patients will live years with ovarian cancer, even if it was advanced at diagnosis. You know, I wish I could tell you that most of my patients saw five, six, 10, 15 years. We're not there, but patients are living three years, four years, even more after the initial diagnosis. But once it recurs, it's still not curable. Thank you. So there is some hope, but as you say, we're not, we're not there yet. With these advances in treatment, costs have gone up because the drugs cost a lot. The treatment costs a lot. And we have an equity issue. So if you look at certain parts of the United States or even certain parts of our country here in Australia, there is a differential in the access to those kinds of treatments. What's your take on that? I think it's a terrible thing. People still feel like we have the world's best healthcare here in the United States. But what is lost in that picture is that it is not equally distributed care. One of the things that has happened with the Affordable Care Act is we did increase how many people were able to get insurance, but that came with strings. So, for example, I work in Rhode Island. Our neighboring state is Massachusetts. Women and men who go on their state plans, either in Mass or Rhode Island where they live, they can't cross the border for care under the state plans, but they have access to care. So what they lose in choice, they have guarantees in access. The access only can go so far. So it is still true if you have an, 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 an incredible job sponsored health insurance, you are more likely to have access to these treatments. But even there, um, there the barriers exist. 
I am subject to peer-to-peer reviews just to get things covered. And it doesn't seem to matter whether or not you are on a premium plan or not. We oftentimes will rely on industry programs to facilitate free or reduced cost drugs because even for people who are able to get insurance coverage over the drugs, the out-of-pocket expenses still make it prohibitive. And these are only in people who have insurance. There are tons of people, even in the little state of Rhode Island, who don't have health care and come in with cancer. And it is a struggle to find the resources to get them treated. But I work in an institution that struggles and strives for equity. Um, and so we do aim to provide treatment, even if patients are falling within the cracks of society. But it, it's a tough situation. And I think there's one thing to sort of you know work on the insurance provisions of care, but you can't do that without also addressing the costs of care. And even as our drugs become better, the price tags continue to rise and it's not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. So we do need to get a, get a handle on that. And, and I'm hoping with a new administration, there will be some movement towards that equity. But it's still a huge problem. It is a huge problem. And I agree. I think the change in the, in the guard uh, may well make a difference to that. And we hope so. But of course, it's it's a problem that predates all of this. It has been growing in time, hasn't it? Because we've seen that the companies that produce these drugs want to recoup their investment in research. And of course, you can understand the commercial imperative to do that. But it's now coming at the cost of lives and bankruptcies and all the rest of it in our society. What do you think ultimately will happen? Because whatever the administration does, it'll make it easier to be, for people to access some of these things. But of course, the costs are going to continue to grow as genomics gives us many more sophisticated answers to these problems. The opportunity to make a fortune is going to increase dramatically. Right. And we've actually seen that even with the COVID-19 pandemic, that, that companies have really They've gotten rich on R&D funding and, and guarantees of vaccine access and also new treatment modalities. And these are not cheap treatments. But I think what, what needs to happen is a reevaluation of how drugs are priced in this country. And really, it's going to take, and this movement already exists, we need to agree on what drug, when, and, and how it's used. And so one of the ways to try to control costs is to reduce the variabilities in care. So pathways is one of the ways that we're aiming for quality of care, reduce the variability, and get people to agree on which drugs should be used at what point. So there are pathways now in ovarian cancer that are saying, yes, you have a plethora of options. The best data with the best side effect profile and we can consider value, suggests that we all should be following this one pathway. And I think that movement requires a lot of folks like me to put aside our biases of saying, well, I, I want to do it this way and say, we will agree to the pathway. And I think only if pathways 
are followed by a huge majority of those those of us who are involved in pathways, they won't work. So it's a quality metric. And I think if we can reduce the variability of care, there's a possibility we can reduce the costs of care. But that's only one segment of that pie. I mean, the big un when in a capitalist society, right? It's always about market prices and competition rules today. But if all of the competition is not driving the price down, but actually egging it up to see how far they can go, then it, it's almost it's almost counterintuitive. So I do think there needs to be more ways to negotiate pricing of drugs in this country. And I think without it, we won't be able to get very far in terms of forcing our industry partners to the table. But it's just not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And more worse than that, it is that it's divisive. And because it's divisive, we have seen the consequences of that divisiveness in the last four years and even before that. I want to now talk about your advice to budding doctors. So I have a bunch of budding doctors that I look after. Looking at the world that, that we now live in, and the realities that we face, what would be your advice to somebody who says, oh, I'd love to be an oncologist because I want to treat cancer and I want to make a difference in the world, given what the discussion that we've just had? I would still say that being a doctor and being an oncologist is the hugest privilege in the world. To be with someone at their most vulnerable, to see them through a very difficult diagnosis, and then to be able to see that person year after year after year, or alternatively, to be there at the moment when they're leaving this earth and providing them that comfort is a human experience that plays out month after month and year after year. It's hard. And a part of me almost dies every time someone I've followed dies. But it is a human experience of being a physician that is unparalleled. And it makes it such a privilege. But go into the field with the purest of intentions. Because if you're going to go into this field purely to make money, you're not going to be happy. It's a very difficult field. We are doing quite a bit of work on trying to reduce the risks of burnout. And we are looking at the field again of medicine in terms of not this all-encompassing field where it's medicine or you have a life outside of it. There's got to be a way to blend those two. And I think having more women, more minorities, more diversity in our field is changing it for the better. But at the end of the day, no matter if you work 20 hours a week or 90 hours a week, there's a purpose to it. And that purpose is to see patient care, cancer care improve, whether that's for that single patient or a uh, population, or worldwide. There's just so many ways you can go with this. So, Don, how are you stopping yourself burning out? <laughs> so, it's interesting. I have always had a creative outlet. For me, I, I write a lot. So, I have a column online, and whenever the wind strikes, I write a piece. done it for years. And it's a way for me to process really difficult events and come away with it with a lesson for myself. And if someone else finds it interesting, then that's great. So I do that. During the pandemic, I picked up a, my sewing machine again. 
I've been making my own bow ties and I'm making, I've been making masks <laughs> for myself and I engage on social media. You know, I've made exceptional friends both in and out of medicine and it's just a way for me to meet new people and exchange ideas. And it's been a huge value to me so that I don't feel so alone in this field. In the next 20 years, you will leave a legacy in the profession. You will leave a legacy behind and generations of doctors will talk about what that was. If you had one thing you wanted to leave behind, what would it be? I would love to feel I push the needle forward in the way we talk about cancer. I will, I am, the struggle is to improve the way we communicate this. I want to see a world where my colleagues don't refer to cancer as a noun or as an adjective. Don't refer to anybody as, oh, my breast cancer patient or, or worse, these people who failed their treatment or enrolled in this trial. I want to see the language change. I want to see a more patient-centric, patient-informed language in oncology. I want that to be the standard by which we communicate with each other. And if I was able to do that, that would be the last thing I guess I would love. Don Dizon, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for taking the time and we wish you all the very best. And this was a pleasure. I hope I get to meet you in person. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>